0: Hello, and welcome to New Matter. I'm Mike Tarselli, and I'm the scientific director for SLAS. Joining me today is Ola Enkvist of AstraZeneca. How are you, Ola? Uh,
1: I'm fine, thank you. Uh, how are you?
0: I am great, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I'm curious, if you could describe what you do in 10 words or less, what would you say?
1: Uh, 10 words is a very strict limit. <laughs> so what I'm doing, I'm heading what's called the molecular AI uh, section within AstraZeneca. Where we try to drive machine learning and AI for drug design.
0: Excellent. That's about 20, but I'll let you have it. Um, tell me about AI and drug design. How did you get into this field initially? And uh, how does one prepare for this kind of career?
1: I, I think how you got into it and what's happening now. So let's start with that. I mean, the, the, I think there was uh, Time before and a time after for machine learning and AI. So, so I joined um, uh, the industry 2000, and as I said, 2004, we already at that time used machine learning for property prediction and so on. Uh, and that was a useful tool; you could have impact on projects with that and so on. And it's, uh, but it was didn't caught that much attention and. The, impact was not as big as it's now. And I think it was some trends, uh, some changes that started to happen around 2012, where deep learning really came onto the scene with some stunning results in uh, image uh, recognition competitions. Then I think crucial years was 2016, 2017, where the first results ever shown that you could use deep learning to, to generate molecular IDs. Uh, also that you could do synthesis prediction a uh, much more efficiently deep learning. Uh, and uh, it was the time it really take off and now we are seeing uh, a flood of new, new methods and new applications
0: for AI and machine learning for drug design. That's awesome. And it's always good to be in the right place at the right time when technology is growing right around you, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I agree thing. completely. I tell uh, my, my PhD students that. So I have some industrial PhD students. They should be really be grateful they're doing a PhD at this time because now you can do a really fantastic PhD in chem informatics.
0: It's much more exciting than we do five or ten years ago. That's great. Tell me a little bit about synthesis prediction. Um, I assume by which you mean. The generation of new routes to molecules, or perhaps routes to molecules that have never been made. Um, can you expand on that a little?
1: Uh, yeah. So, so I think that harks back all the way to the 60s to EB Corey, have the LASA program, program that was completely rule based. Uh, and then it has been, I think, a low level activity until, say, 2016, 2017. I uh, have a first uh, Marvin Segler, which was then a PhD student at University of Münster. He had access to the, the Reaxis database from Elsevier and could really show that uh, you can make a lot of progress in synthesis prediction by treating it as a big data problem to basically not uh, just apply rules, but to have a big data set and train neural networks. And then together, with uh, what's called Monte Carlo Tree Search. It was a method that came out of Deep Mind's uh, Go program that beat the world champions. If you combine Monte Carlo Tree Search uh, with deep learning uh, neural nets that you could reach much better predictions for synthetic routes.
0: Got it. And I'm very familiar with the E.J. Corey book, The Logic of Chemical Synthesis, a classic in the Ove. But I will ask there's a lot of question marks from synthetic chemists and biologists in the field that say, um, perhaps it's like that old cartoon where it says dot dot dot, and then a miracle occurs. How do you infer that your methods are grounded in enough reality that the methods are, you know, tractable, can actually be done, are um, based on reagents we have access to today, et cetera? How do you put the feasibility part in? I think it's.
1: Uh, of course, it's still, in, uh, uh, so say, an area of, of quick development, and I think there's still improvements to be done. But but in, in the end, I, th- I think you you need to put the hands, uh, so say, the, the the tool in the hands of the chemists, so that they can try it out and see whether it's useful or where it is not useful. I think it's very still an active research area. Uh, at Asosanic, we we try to uh, basically, uh, when the, the, the chemist proposes molecules and puts it in, into, so to say, the, the system for, for potential synthesis, uh, there's also the possibility to get the synthetic route uh, uh, predicted through both an internal tool and from the MDSLP uh, consortia that is led by the MIT Chemical Engineering Department, which has also uh, been uh, uh, heavily involved in developing the uh, synthetic truth prediction tools.
0: Thanks much for that. And shout out to MDSLP, of which I was involved a few years back. And Connor Coley, uh, a founding member of that, was involved with our AI conference efforts. So okay, it all comes yeah. back, small community.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, no. And I think they have done a great work at the MIT. So I think the original idea was from Marvin Sigler's paper, but actually uh, to, to really productionalize it. to to develop a tool that that people can use that has been done by uh, Connor, Klaus, and Tommy
0: uh, at MIT. Excellent. So so tell me about data that comes into you. As a computational scientist and a chem informatician, what do you wish that scientists knew from an assay perspective, a chemistry perspective, etc., or even an automation perspective, of how to get you the right and good and curated data so that you can do what you need?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, well, first I say that, that it's a fantastic time and the time gets better and better because mo- much more data is generated. Uh, and I think that is, makes me so optimistic about machine learning AI, because I think to have sustained innovation in the field, I think uh, more data is necessary. And we're seeing a lot of progress, like techniques like uh, transcriptomics is making a lot of progress, genomics, of course. There are several exciting uh, new technologies that have generated very interesting data sets. Uh, one is the cell paint uh, system, mm-hmm. which is an image-based uh, assay, which is uh, very information-rich. I think that's one, one interesting aspect. Uh, when it comes to chemical reactions, I think there's a lot of interest in uh, high throughput experimentation. and uh, Now this will also be, will generate a lot of data. Uh, a screening technology that generates a lot of data is a DNA encoded library technology that is getting uh, more and more common. So so there, it is there's a lot of things going on at the moment, so it's a really exciting times and uh, one should not separate the, the, the data generation from
0: the data exploitation. I think they should need to be t- uh, tightly interlinked. Got it. So you are absolutely awash in high quality experimental data coming in from multiple streams. So. Tell me, as a... uh,
1: so, so you the, it's, it's always a, uh, so it's a compromise between the quality and the quantity, uh, you need to find the right compromise there. Uh, you, you both have the high quality, but also you would like the big data sets, so, so there's a, always a
0: compromise involved there. Got it. So, so explain for the Listening audience, your process as you come in as a computational scientist. You have so much data to start from, you have so many techniques you can apply to it, and so many sort of decision states and disease states you can apply these to. How do you start on a project, you, Ola? Like, what's your first step?
1: Uh, I mean, it's, I mean, for us, when I'm coming in, it's a lot to drive the the machine learning AI for for drug design. And then we, we have a starting point. Uh, heat molecules. That could come from virtual screenings and computational work, could be from high throughput screening, could be from DNA encoded library screening. And then we, we really try to apply as much machine learning and AI as possible to optimize that compound in what's called design make test cycle. And, and of course there are a lot of emphasis is to, to build as accurate models as possible for physical chemical properties, uh, for the Activity for the bespoke target, uh, potential also activity models for, for off targets, and then for the safety panels. And then you use all those models to, uh, through the de normal design, make new molecules that you then also score, with your synthesis prediction to, to basically to have a a set of molecules as quickly as possible to the chemist that then can be synthesized either
0: manually or on a chemistry automation platform. So what you've just described is the, the virtual target selection, the hit to lead, the lead up, and a little bit of ADME, all computationally without ever touching a flask or a bench <laughs> all, uh, all before they get to chemist.
1: <laughs> I think you need to combine it. It's. Uh, I think it's... You need to to measure still measure compounds. Uh, You do always the prediction, but you still need to measure compounds as well to improve your models
0: in your local region. Got it. So tell me a little bit about you as a scientist. I'm curious, what's the most exciting professional development you've witnessed either in the last 16 years you've spent at AZ or in your entire career to date?
1: I think the most exciting is actually when I first saw the novel generation molecules that it actually worked. So it was back in, I think it must have been November 2016, when Marvin Segler, who was then an unknown PhD student at University of Minster, was a guest in the team. And he could show that through recurrent neural network you could generate really drug-like molecules. Completely noble, but still drug-like. Then I realized that somehow this is uh, will be a transformative, uh, so to say, technique for how we approach drug design.
0: Yeah, your own little pocket of chemical space, just for you, and done using real rules. Right, that's amazing. Yeah, so
1: it's. Uh, I think that advantage is that you can really sample now
0: from the whole chemical space. Exactly, and you've expanded on this a little before, because you said that you already mentor PhD students in AZ. Can you describe that process a little? What's the difference between an industrial PhD student and a traditional academic career? Uh,
1: so, so I think it's the, the industrial training. So, so basically for industrial PhD students, uh, I was a big part of a horse on 2020 grant. So I had uh, six PhD students spending 50% uh, of the time in the team and then 50% of the time with the academic supervisor. So it's to get them the industrial uh, experience and also to develop like methods that will be, so to say, not only published, but also applied
0: in real-life drug discovery projects. Which is amazing and is something that I would argue even 10 years ago, you probably didn't have these kind of models for this advanced study.
1: Now, uh, now I think it's it, it's a good system. There, it we call industri- so European industrial P- PhDs. Uh, I think it, it creates a lot of good interaction both between companies and uh, leading academics. But it also really it gets the students a different perspective. Uh, and I think many of them have been really motivated that they see that they not only published paper but actually their
0: method will be used also in live projects. Right, they're watching their work be useful in drug discovery. That's great. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about, uh, with your, both your professor type hat on and your chem informatics hat on, what tips do you have for younger generations coming up, say undergraduates and early graduate students who are in this automation screening and data science space? What should they be learning, doing? What should they be aware of that they may not yeah. be?
1: Okay, I think first, uh, I think that they, I should say, they have done a fantastic career choice. I mean, the intersection between automation, uh, data generation, and data analysis, data modeling, I think we will be a very important area for the decades to come. I think that they should really educate themselves broadly. I think that they know definitely a lot of the basics, uh, math, statistics, computer science, uh, but also a lot of in chemistry, in biology. I think uh, that's what I recommend. They should uh, take courses quite broadly to have this broad uh, uh, knowledge base. And then when you do your PhD or after your PhD in your academic industrial career, then you can get more focused in the bespoke area. But
0: I think to know the field broadly, I think, is good. Understood. Thank you very much for this time. And any closing thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with?
1: No, just to say that it's uh, really fortunate to be part of this exciting time so we can really see the impact of uh, AI and machine learning
0: in drug discovery and drug design. Thank you very much, Dr. Ola Enkvist, AstraZeneca. Take care.
1: Okay, thank you.